You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hello, hello. Welcome back or welcome if this is your first time listening to the pod. If you haven't already signed up for my mailing list, I highly encourage you to scroll down to the show notes and click on the link for the landing page to get on my weekly newsletter. Goes out every single Thursday. So many more interesting ideas. Well, whatever. I'm not biased here, but good ideas, some journal prompts, and just things that you don't find anywhere else. Plus, you have the opportunity to respond right back to me, which takes this one-sided conversation to a two-way conversation. This week's episode is episode 42 with Lindsay Brian Podman. She is a biracial financial therapist, podcast host, speaker, and the author of the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. In her therapy practice, which is called Mind Money Balance, she uses shame-free financial therapy to help people get their, get this, minds and money in balance. She's expanded her services to help private practice therapists with their money mindset, sustainable pricing, and authentic marketing so that they can include financial self-care in their work. I am so excited for this conversation because as you all know, I've been talking since the dawn of time about our relationship with money and relationship with food are so, so similar. And if we're not careful or pay attention to the mindset stuff behind it or the underlying issues behind our relationship with food and money, we can very quickly jump from one to the other. When we work on one, the other one comes up and then vice versa. And so I love this conversation because we sort of blend the two, your relationship with food, relationship with money, and working toward healing of any financial anxiety you might have and disordered eating all in one. So let's just jump right in. Hello, Lindsay. I am so excited for this. We are finally here. Thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm I'm so excited to be chatting with you. You know, we've been chatting over Instagram and then through coffee chats. So it's nice to be on the pod now. Yeah. Maybe just to start us off, can you share a little bit about yourself and some of the work that you do? Sure. So I'm a financial therapist. I have a background in clinical social work. And as a clinical social worker, I started out by specializing in depression and anxiety. And like many social workers, I have my own kind of tale with money and I come from a financially privileged background in that I graduated school without debt, but my first job with a master's degree in social work, I was earning less money than I was as a waitress. So I was earning (laughs) $32,000 and as a waitress, I was earning closer to like 45 or 50 a year. And I had this huge existential crisis about having wasted my financial privilege. What was I doing? How was I going to make ends meet? And simultaneously seeing people who are struggling with depression and anxiety and having their own stressors with money. 
but like many therapists, we are not trained to talk about money. So I really wanted to blend the two mental health and money, but I also wanted to do it in an ethical way. So I sought out additional training in financial social work and in financial therapy so I could bring it to my clients. And then a little bit about me. Let's see. I live um, on occupied land of the Peoria, Anishinaabe, and Potawatomi peoples, currently known as Michigan. My partner and I live together with our Portuguese water dog. And, you know, now at the time of this recording, we're kind of finally getting into spring and the sun's starting to come out. So enjoying, you know, springtime walks with my pup around town. Oh, that sounds the best. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So maybe a little bit more about financial therapy and especially the extensive training that you did. First of all, what is a financial therapist? If someone's never heard of it. Yeah, it's it's a good question. And thankfully, there are more and more of us. So a financial therapist is somebody who has a background in some sort of therapeutic discipline, could be psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, or counseling, and they have cross-training in financial psychology. There are a few ways to kind of be credentialed as a financial therapist right now. One is through the Center for Financial Social Work. One is through the Financial Therapy Association. And then there are a couple of social work schools popping up that have a financial social work arm or discipline or like track. So I'm really excited to see more of us kind of show up. But what we do is not the same as like managing somebody's money. We are not financial planners. We are not advisors. What we are really doing is spending, in my opinion, the bulk of our time on the emotional and psychological side of money, the behavioral side of money, and less on the how-tos. So the way that I kind of explain that is financial therapists are less of what is a budget or how to make a budget and is more of what's getting in the way of me creating one or talking about it or looking at my money. So my work is like 80% emotional, behavioral, and about 20% about the numbers. So financial therapists really help kind of integrate systemic issues with money. They integrate the psychology of money, the behavior of money, and making sure that yes, financial literacy is important, but how are we applying it and making it feel good and work for us? Yeah. Because when you think about it, so many times when people talk about money, it's revolved, (laughs) well, or not talk about money, it's all because of anxiety. And there's so much anxiety you, hello, didn't talk about your book. You have a book called Financial yes. Anxiety. That's like a big deal for people. So either they refuse to look at their bank account or even talk about a budget or you know anything related to money and then end up being detrimental. But like, there's so much stuff underneath that we could explore that'll help them. Right, exactly. And as therapists, we're so good at diving into the deep end with things like anxiety, depression, trauma, we're really well-versed in holding space for difficult themes and conversations. But I don't know about you, but in my training, we did not talk about money. In fact, the closest we ever got to talking about money in grad school was in a death and dying class when we were talking about like durable powers of attorney and creating wills and trusts. But that like barely scratched it. But otherwise, we did not talk about money at all in my training. That's yeah. I mean, we didn't either. In my postgrad training, we had, we had to deal with all the money collecting or even as interns when we weren't getting paid. So we had to deal with that. So they were very big into the money conversation, which if you didn't do any specific training or understand your own money anxiety can be 
almost impossible. How do you talk about your client's anxiety if you're feeling really anxious about money and talking about money that this person is paying you for services? I mean, it gets so, so complicated. But if you work through some of that, you know, when we talk about conversations about fee increase, all things like that, those are beautiful ways and segues to get into money conversations. So if we can work through the anxiety, it can be so, so helpful. Absolutely. So this is something I've been talking about for a long time. And I'm so excited for this particular conversation because the way that I conceptualize relationship with food is so similar to relationship with money. And, you know, they follow similar patterns. And if you sort of work with one, then weirdly find the other one pop up. So I guess, you know, just from what you see or your experience, how can we understand the similarities between relationship with money and food? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I'm happy to share a little bit about my own personal experience. So, you know, Rochelle, you know this, um, (laughs) but I have been in recovery from an eating disorder for over a decade. And around the time I was starting my first job out of grad school, I was in the early years of recovery. So for folks who are in recovery from eating disorders, you might recognize this. I wasn't having the disordered behaviors, but I was definitely still having some of those disordered thoughts. And so as I started my first job and I was struggling to pay my bills and kind of cut down spending and trying to make ends meet, I did what a lot of folks do. I I turned to financial literacy education. So I checked out books from the library. I listened to podcasts. I turned on, you know, the talking heads. I did anything that I could to educate myself around money and financial literacy. And at first it felt very, very helpful. But over time, what I noticed was that so much of the noise in the personal financial literacy education space specifically is all about how the individual is the problem and how they need to spend less, how there are certain things that are bad to spend money on. There's so much emphasis in the personal finance space on like needs and wants and how you're bad if you spend any money on a want and how it is frivolous and how you're being irresponsible with money and how it's reckless. And particularly for folks who are millennials or Gen Zers, we hear a lot of noise about like, well, you know, you're just spending too much money on lattes and on avocado toast and things like that. And back in my day, we didn't do that. And that's why we are where we are. So I started to notice these themes come up in the world of personal finance that felt very familiar to me as a person in recovery from an eating disorder, right? The labeling of good food, bad food, of like good spending, bad spending, of having these really rigid guidelines around you're allowed to spend 30% of your money on this and 50% of your money on this and 20% of your money on this. It sounded a lot like some of the rules I would give myself in terms of food and in terms of enjoying yourself. It was all labeled as like splurges and treats. And I can remember those things from the days. So I pretty quickly as a relative, but I would say within like a year or so, It all kind of clicked for me that I cannot continue to consume all of this shame-based financial literacy education because it's triggering so much of my disordered eating. And again, I wasn't actively in an eating disorder space at that time, but I was definitely in the early stages of recovery. And I was like, I can't do this. I cannot 
heal my relationship with money by putting a ton of negative restriction and labels on it. So that's my personal experience with personal finances. And so I had to do a lot of things that I did in my own recovery journey. And I had to kind of reframe things and give myself more permission and practice more intuitive spending. And that felt so much better than these really rigid guidelines that were created by somebody else who doesn't know me from you know, a person walking down the street. Exactly. Yeah. And I think about how this labeling things as good and bad that leads to a very sort of restricted cycle with money that creates so much anxiety and obsession or vice versa, like anxiety and trying not to think about it at all. So thinking about the two extremes where somebody will be like, this is way too overwhelming. I don't want to think about it at all versus someone says this is way too anxiety provoking and then has 17 Excel spreadsheets and they check it 25 times a day. Exactly. And that's what I talk about in the financial anxiety solution. My book is that there's really these two ways that anxiety, financial anxiety manifests. It's in perfectionism, which is that 17 spreadsheets and it's in the procrastination or the avoidance of money altogether. And it's like each of those can serve a temporary purpose to soothe our anxiety, but they aren't great long-term strategies for cultivating a healthy relationship with money. Yeah. The other thing that I think is a little bit trickier with money because it is something that we use to sort of exchange for things. But another pattern that I see is the compensatory nature of it. So if I, let's say, have my latte with avocado toast, those are such perfect examples. I use it all the time. I mean, everyone says that. Who buys a $5 coffee? Which they're not $5 anymore. They're more than that. But whatever. It's sort of like then you can't spend on lunch or then you have to work that much harder to earn the money back. And so again, like it gets tricky because it's a limited resource for individuals, but the compensatory nature of I have to earn this in order to spend gets so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where we have to push in in our industry, both in the therapy industry and the personal finance industry, that the only option to being quote unquote good with money is not just restricting spend, but it's also increasing income, right? Because we can only cut so much But really what moves the needle is earning better wages. So for me, when I was earning that $32,000 a year, I was doing everything in my power to cut spending, to use different deals when I went grocery shopping and only go out to eat during happy hour time. And like everything you can think of, I was doing so that I could be quote unquote good with money. But my sleep was a nightmare. Um, I developed chronic insomnia. I was getting sick all the time. And what really moved the needle for me in moving into a healthier space with money was earning more. So I left that job and got a job that was like, oh my God, it paid like 50K a year. So it was a big pay jump from 32 to 50. And that was so, it was like within a week, within a month, I was sleeping again. Uh, My anxiety had decreased. I was, you know, my, my immune system kind of started to rebuild itself because yes, we can cut all day. But at the end of the day, what also helps is to advocate for better wages. And I think that's something that is sorely lacking as therapists. (laughs) You know, we need to advocate for better wages, but also for people who are in the personal finance industry, just the importance of saying we all need to kind of increase our take-home monies. Yeah. I have a couple of questions. I'm going to shelf that for a second, Um, (laughs) just because it comes, it circles back to 
another section that I wanted to sort of do in a slightly more organized way. If we can just narrow in the relationship with money piece right now, what are some of the main struggles that you see with people and money, even in categories, if you will? Yeah, I think it's, we, well, first, just like most things, we develop our relationship with money as children. So one thing to think about is going back to childhood and kind of taking a look at what were the messages you were getting about money or not getting about money and how does that shape the way that you interact with money now? And while there are so many different ways that people can interpret money, I tend to see people kind of fall into different buckets of like money is bad and it's for greedy capitalists and it, you know, ruins people. You shouldn't ask for more. Or I see people fall into like, if you work hard, you'll make a lot of money and people are poor because they're not hard workers. Like they tend to fall into these buckets of either money is good or money is bad. And those types of associations can come with a whole host of different anxieties and stressors and pain points versus just something that's really hard to do, which is neutralizing money and being like, money is a tool. It can be used for harm. It can be used for good. But at the end of the day, living in the society that we live in, we all need it. We all need money so that we can afford access to things like self-care, wellness, spirituality, emotional well-being. To me, practicing financial self-care is so important and it affords us the ability to take care of so many other things in our lives. So when it comes to what people struggle with, it often comes down to this idea of a money story about what a person believes money is there for. And that money story really shapes what we think we're allowed to spend money on, how much we think we can earn, whether or not we think debt is good or bad, whether or not we think that we are allowed to save or how much we can save, or if we invest, it shapes all of those what we do with money based on what we think money is or isn't. Yeah. So practically speaking, when you see somebody, or if you can conceptualize somebody's struggles with money, what would you say are the, I guess, most popular for lack of a better term? It's not exactly the word I'm looking for, but the themes that you see that come out with people, either with their money mindset or just with their behaviors with money. Yeah, I would say for sure the behaviors with money definitely fall into those two buckets of perfectionism or procrastination. And so the perfectionists who come in with their money, they're the ones who've read every book that they can get their hands on about money. They listen to all the money podcasts. They follow everything to a T. Everything is color-coded and yet they still feel really uncomfortable with money. They thought that information and organization was going to help them cultivate a healthy relationship with money. And they're super frustrated that they still feel anxious, worried on edge. They don't feel like they're doing it right because in our society, we're really taught that if you work hard, then things will be easier. And and this is kind of set up for us from school. You know, if you study, you'll get a good grade. And if you get a good grade, you get a pat on the back. And if you get a pat on the back, you get a nice letter to school or whatever. But they try that with money and they try consuming information and trying to learn everything. And then even when they're doing things, it still feels weird. And that's where in financial therapy, we dig into what is making it feel weird? What would it feel like for money to not feel anxiety producing? What would it feel like on the other side? And we can kind of work towards a calm, confident, easy relationship with money. And then on the other side is that procrastination is just I don't want to look at it. It freaks me out. I think it's irritating. I don't want to deal with it. It'll sort itself out. 
just those types of procrastinating behaviors that can also come from a host of different reasons. But sometimes it's it's actually blended in with a perfectionism in that if I can't do my money the right way, then I won't deal with it at all. And the tricky piece with money is that if we procrastinate on engaging with it, we really harm ourselves in the long run. For example, if you want to retire someday, we live in a society where most of us are responsible for our retirement income. Unless you have a pension, which is very rare today, almost all of us are <laughs> responsible for contributing to things like a 401k, a 403b, an IRA, et cetera. And if you're avoiding starting one of those things because you want to get it right, you're missing out on potentially years of that money growing and gaining compound interest. Similarly, even just like avoiding starting a budget or my preferred term, a spending plan. If you're procrastinating on starting it because you're worried you won't do it right, you may end up in a situation where you've been overspending for years or you're kind of relying on credit cards to float you through from month to month. And that puts you in a really scary financial situation. You know, most Americans are a paycheck away from living paycheck to paycheck. I hope that makes sense. We're we're basically $1,000 away from living paycheck to paycheck. And so having a cushion can help buffer us in the event that we are injured and we're not able to work, in the event that we lose our jobs, in the event that we need to stop working to take care of a sick child. There are so many things that could happen that if we don't have an emergency fund or cash on hand that we can spend to you know, pay our bills, we can get into really, really sticky financial situations. So procrastination can be really dangerous sounds overblown, but it really can be dangerous if we procrastinate on engaging with our money. Yeah. So say someone's listening and they're like, okay, I'm here because I know that there's something up with my relationship with food and listening to this, I'm like, oh my God, I definitely (laughs) have something with money. So, you know, especially coming at it from both angles that it's so easy We're not easy is not even the right word, but it's much simpler to say, I'm going to focus on my relationship with food and then I'm going to heal that. And then whatever, if the money comes out, let me see if I can deal with it then. But I think sort of what you're alluding to with the money story and where it stems from is that if we have similar relationship with food and money, it probably stems from a very similar place. And so what you're going to end up doing if you're going to heal or work toward healing one is the game of whack-a-mole. So then one goes down, the other one goes up, blah, 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 on and on. So how can we work toward healing or at least bring more awareness or something on that journey so that we can almost work on both or just in a way that doesn't perpetuate the other? Oh, such a good question. So I, I often think about when we're coming, we're working towards recovery in an eating disorder. Often we are used to doing everything all at once. We're really good. You know, I think people with eating disorders forget how many amazing skills they have, the ability to balance all of these different thoughts and plans. They're amazing project managers in a way. Definitely. You know, but using some of those skills and saying, it's okay if I don't do it all at once, you know, that self-compassion that we practice as we recover from an eating disorder can easily be applied to our relationship with money. You don't have to be doing a million and one things financially. Choose one thing, one area to focus on and know that it will cause a positive ripple effect in your relationship with money. So for example, if you really want to work on 
bulking up an emergency fund, but you're getting anxious about like retirement and student loans and, you know, sending your kid to preschool. Those are all reasonable worries. But first focusing on that emergency fund and practicing a lot of compassion to say, I'm working on getting $1,000 saved up in an emergency fund. And once I do that, then I can kind of open up that next door and peek into how am I going to save for you know my kiddo's preschool or how am I going to contribute towards retirement? But giving yourself that permission to not have to do everything all at once, just like with our eating disorder, where we feel like we have to do everything at once. And it's like, we can dial back certain areas and practice a lot of, of self compassion throughout the process. And the other thing with money that's also true with eating disorders as we work towards healing our relationship with money is that you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes and it's not the end of the world. And the more we can normalize making mistakes as a part of growth and as a part of healing, the better off we are. And often with eating disorders, we're really harsh on ourselves when we make mistakes. So just right away out the gate saying, I'm working on saving up money in an emergency fund. And I know I'm going to make a mistake or two along the way, like almost putting it in a mantra the way that you would for anything else, because when we make mistakes financially, it can feel so easy to just throw in a towel and be like, that's it. I'm done. I tried. It's not for me. And it kind of perpetuates the cycle versus saying, this is a new skill. This is a new practice. I'm learning, I'm growing, and there will be hiccups along the way. Yeah. What if somebody doesn't even know where their quote issue is? They just feel anxious around money. What would you say would be a good first step for someone yeah, like that? A good first step is to just start almost tracking, um, not, not in a compulsion way, but just starting to notice every time you engage with money, what are your thoughts and what are your feelings? And what I mean by that is literally every time you grab your debit card, how are you feeling? And what are your thoughts? Every time you log into your bank account, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings? Because what we want to start to see is where is the pattern? Is the pattern like of anxiety only showing up when we're spending money, when we're paying bills, when we're going out to eat? Is it only showing up when our paycheck hits? Is it only showing up when we're looking at our retirement accounts? Is it only showing up when we're engaging in conversations with our partners? Starting to notice some of the patterns so you can identify. Because most people say to me, oh, I'm just terrible at money all the time. And I'm like, maybe, but maybe not. And as we get into this exercise, what often happens is they'll see, okay, there are a handful of areas where I'm really avoidant about my money, but there are other areas where I'm actually quite comfortable. Like I can go out to lunch and I don't think twice about it. It doesn't make me anxious. I'm able to enjoy my meal and that's okay. But when it comes to retirement, all of a sudden I'm panicking. I can't even you know, hit the link to reset my password and open up my retirement account just too stressful. And from there, we can kind of sit with curiosity and be like, why do you think that is? What might be going on? And particularly with things like retirement, oftentimes we think about things like aging and what does it mean to be older and what does it mean to not work? And what would it look like if I wasn't punching a clock or what would it look like if I were an empty nester? And those kind of more existential questions can be really scary to answer. And that's where having a therapist to help you kind of work on those things might make it easier for you to dig into say your retirement accounts. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Just also circling back to the money mindset piece we were talking about before. Actually, before that, what you were saying is so reminiscent of a food log, especially in the beginning when someone starts working with a dietitian to get more information of what's going on throughout the day or throughout the week. 
you know, the idea of gathering information, being more aware, and then putting on your curiosity hat is probably key across the board. Right. Right. Absolutely. So talking about money mindset, again, circling back to that it stems from childhood and the messages that we've internalized, how would you suggest someone start working on their money mindset, which is less so focused on behaviors and more so what's going on internally? Yeah, I think we can start by just kind of finishing a few sentences for ourselves, like in a a journaling exercise. And it would be something like money means dot, dot, dot. When I earn money, I dot, dot, dot. And what we can start to see there is again, with that curiosity hat on, what are some of our bigger thoughts and feelings about money? And then asking that next set of questions, which is like, is this helping me? If I have a thought that money is dirty and bad and only for greedy people, does that thought serve me? And some people might be like, yep, it serves me perfectly. I love living my life that way. No big deal. And for others, they might go, (laughs) wow, I didn't realize that I had all of this baggage around money. Actually thinking that is not helping me a ton. And it's potentially making me you know, subconsciously self-sabotage. I haven't asked for a raise in five years at work, or I haven't negotiated down a utility bill that is through the roof. So thinking about how those thoughts and beliefs might be impacting behaviors. And then a final set of questions to ask yourself would be, what do I want to think about money? What would it mean if money was neutral for me and, and in my life? And where I think money mindset gets so warped is right now you hear about this dichotomy of you either have a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset with money. And I think that also can be really harmful. And just to kind of do a quick definition for folks who might not have heard it or who have heard it, but don't know what I'm talking about. The idea of abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset is this idea that if you have a scarcity mindset with money, you think that money is a limited resource and therefore you will act in ways that could potentially harm you financially speaking. And if you have an abundance mindset, you believe that there's more than enough money to go around and that money will always flow your way. Well, that is fine and dandy, except that it gets us back into black and white thinking, which is really, really scary when we are recovering from an eating disorder. We want to move away from black and white and into more nuance and into more curiosity. And the problem I find with abundance mindset is that it also includes a lot of spiritual bypassing in that if somebody says, you know, man, I'm I'm really struggling at work, let's say, and I, I negotiated for a raise and they said no. A person who really embodies this idea that there's only two ways to think about money of scarcity or abundance is going to probably shame or blame that person. They're going to say, well, if you had an abundance mindset, you would have gone in there and you would have been really confident when asking for your money. And it's probably because you have a scarcity mindset that you didn't get that raise. And that can be really almost victim blaming in a way versus saying something like, yeah, we're in a system that makes it really hard for people to advocate for the level of compensation that they deserve based on the work that they're doing. I'm really proud of you for going in and asking for that raise. What's a good next step for you? Is it time to look elsewhere? Is it time to talk to your boss one more time about asking for a raise instead of it being like, well, it's your fault. You have a scarcity mindset. I just don't find that to be super helpful. 
Yeah. I love the nuance in that because, you know, sort of similar to what you were referring to earlier about making so little money right out of grad school and then uh, working toward making more money, which is, you know, potentially the only answer sometimes when you're not making enough to cover your bills. There is a little bit of, I guess, for lack of a better term, mindset work that goes into being able to shift into, I deserve to make money, I guess that's separate from, or not super, super connected to abundance mindset, but there's something about knowing your worth and that you do deserve to make money that has a lot to do with your ability to then do so. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that has been helpful for me, an internet friend of mine, Jaquette Timmons is a financial behaviorist. And she helped me to kind of separate out the idea of your worth versus your money. In other words, to say like your income or your net worth doesn't determine your worthiness. Just being a human on earth means you are inherently worthy of existing and having a healthy, happy life. So starting to kind of separate that out and say, what is the value of the labor that I'm putting in or the value of the work that I'm doing worth and advocating on that. So that way we can kind of separate out if we didn't get a raise, it's not because we're you know not worthy of a raise. It might be because there are a bunch of systems in place that make it really difficult to ask for that raise or to get that raise. And to your point, we all need to probably be negotiating for higher wages in general. You know, we've been talking about like record inflation of eight percent over the last year, which means if you did not give yourself a raise if you're self-employed, or if you did not get a raise and you're traditionally employed of at least eight percent last year or this year rather you lost money. You lost money because your income is not keeping up with inflation. So just even thinking about it at like the most basic level, your dollar goes 8% less far than it did last year. So um, instead of you know that dollar being worth a dollar, it's now worth 92 cents is another way to put it. Wow. You know, I love how you continue to add more nuance here because I think the very first step that I always had in my mind is to bring your worth up and therefore you'll be able to bring your income up. And it's obviously not so directly connected, but there is a lot of sort of self-worth work that we do. But separating that even further to, I'm going to work on how I feel about myself and then I'm going to disconnect that from how much money I make or what my body looks like is, oh oh my gosh, so hard to do. But if we can continue to separate that, then money continues to be a tool. And that's all that it is. Exactly. It's a neutral tool and we assign it meaning. And yes, it can do bad things. Yes, it can do good things, but it is not, it's not always what we think that it is. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, there's so many good Pearls of wisdom here. I'm excited (laughs) for people to listen to this uh, for real, because I think that I'm actually thinking of a story. I have no idea where I heard this, but it was a story of a woman who was either in recovery at some point in her recovery, probably some sort of IOP program or, or a program where they take them out for snacks and they were doing a challenge of ice cream. And the challenge was okay, the ice cream is really hard for this person because of the eating disorder and all the loud voices. But what seemed to be so loud for this particular person was this version is this much money and this version is that much money. And if I add the cone, it's going to be this much more. And it just feels 
exactly like what we're talking about today, that we can transfer one anxiety to another. And then we just don't live our life fully. We stay in our anxiety. We stay in our obsession and, you know, we deserve much more than that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I so appreciate this. If somebody wants to learn more about this or more about you, where can they find you? Yeah. My business is called Mind Money Balance. And you can head to my website, mindmoneybalance.com to find out a bunch of information. I have a podcast. I'm fairly active over on Instagram. I have an active blog. My book is called The Financial Anxiety Solution. And I invite all listeners to take a free financial archetype quiz. So I've kind of broken down in very quick, like, you know, BuzzFeed style quiz, what your relationship with money is like. And it, it talks about both the strengths and some of the challenges that come can come along with it. So you can start getting more in touch with your money story. And that's at mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. I love that quiz. It's a really fun one and oh, enlightening. <laughs> yeah. I'll link to all of them in the show notes so that people Yay. can find them really Perfect. easily. Love it. Yeah. Thank you again. Thank you. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.